0: Discretionary listener participation is advised for the following Pro Wrestling Podcast. Or what is it good for? Absolutely nothing because I can't listen to Stick to Wrestling if I'm in the middle of fighting a war. I want to thank Edwin Starr for writing that song about his favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling. Welcome, everyone. I'm John McAdam. If you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we will give you a Raw Bone podcast. This is the only wicked good podcast out there. It is the People's Podcast. It is the major league of professional wrestling podcasts. And with that, uh, if you'd like to follow me on Twitter, just uh, search John McAdam and follow the guy who has guys in his avatar fighting with chairs. You want to join our Facebook group, Stick to Wrestling, just Put that in, search it, and you are ready to go. It's a cool group. We have results, good conversation, uh, sometimes relating to the show, sometimes not. With that, I want to bring on part two of my conversation with Steve Generali. It was the Backland Era WWF that we're talking about. We used his website, Armchair Wrestler, as the backdrop for it, and here we go with part two. Enjoy. All right, 1980, Bob Backland, is according to the numbers your number one guy? Subjectively, is Bob Backlund the MVP of the WWF in 1980?
1: Well, you know, subjectively, I guess it would have to be either be Bruno or Larry Zbyszko, uh, and maybe maybe we could even put Larry Zabisco as number one, only because not only did he wrestle Bruno and have the angle with him, but he also you know had matches with Backlund and he wrestled Pedro and some other people too. Bruno wrestled a limited schedule, maybe mainly against uh, Larry. He wrestled Sergeant Slaughter at the end of the year at MSG, but didn't wrestle as much as Sko did. So maybe maybe I would put Zabisco in the number one spot.
0: I actually subjectively put Bruno in the number one spot because to me, if it, I mean the whole thing that made the Zabisco-Bruno thing work was the fact that Bruno was Bruno. Mm-hmm. And I don't think he could have done that with Zabisco. Certainly couldn't have done that with anyone else.
1: No, but you make a great point, John. I mean, when you put it that way, I, I can't argue with it. So,
0: All right. Uh, let me see. Number two, subjectively, would you have had, who would you have had? Um, I probably would have Zabisco. Uh, if, well, if I, if I had
1: Zabisco one, then probably Bruno two, and, and then probably back three, just because he's, he's the champ. So,
0: that's ex- that's exactly what I have. I have Larry Zabisco, number two, Backlund, number three. So one thing about Bruno Sammartino, he wrestled Sergeant Slaughter at Madison Square Garden, December 1980. When Backlund was in Japan, it was the only time that during the Backlund era, he did not main event Madison Square Garden. Uh, it was the night that John Lennon was killed, unfortunately. So this is like almost 40 years ago to the day that this is coming out, like within a few weeks. I, I mean, that was, you know, that's another thing with Bruno's legacy. The match made sense because Sergeant Slaughter attacked Arnold scholand on TV and the match drew. Yeah. That, and that turned
1: out to be really Bruno's last MSG match until he came back until uh, 1985 when he was with his son for WrestleMania. Um, I think he was actually in David's corner for a match against uh, when David re- wrestled Patera and uh, Captain Lewis in Patera's corner. And then Bruno and David wrestled uh, Johnny V and Bruno's Beefcake, I think, in June of 85 at MSG. So Bruno would come back for you know, a handful of matches into 86. The last ever Bruno match at MSG was the Bruno-Santana against uh, Macho Man and Adrian Adonis match in the cage, which was an excellent match. So Bruno was, was almost done here, but he would come back in the mid-80s, thank goodness.
0: Yeah, Bruno in Boston had a series uh against Roddy Piper that ended in a cage match in eighty five into eighty six. And then he had a match uh, a series against Randy Savage in Boston in nineteen eighty six when uh right after they they did the thing where Savage crushed Ricky Steamboat's throat with a ring bell. And
1: and uh not to brag, but actually I was there that night that was taped in Binghamton that, that match That's where right got hit with the bell and and, uh, and Bruno did his thing where he attacked Savage afterwards. And, and, and it's funny. Um, I know for, for both of us, we're both huge Dave Meltzer Observer fans. And I remember um, I got a whole bunch of the back issues, as I'm sure you probably did, too. Oh, yeah. There, there is an issue from, uh, I think it um, uh, must be like January of 87, uh, where he said, you know, Bruno San Martino against Randy Savage drew 19,000 fans to Boston. And that was just like a last minute, like this last minute thing he put in the Observer, because I guess he ran out of time. But but it was just amazing. I mean, other than Hogan, who was drawing these humongous houses all over the country, I mean, Bruno was the only other wrestler you could think of, even in 86 or 87, that could draw like this massive house. I know, uh, you know, with the NWA, I mean, they they put these huge shows together, but it was more like the show that would sell the huge crowd. It wasn't like one or two wrestlers that, where they could do it on their own
0: yeah i do know that when dave had everything printed up and ready to go and ready to bring to the printer and if he got a phone call with like a big story and it had to be something big like when jerry lawler uh, lost his hair to austin idol he would just Mm -hmm. like scribble it in right you know it would be like last last minute all right now so we've got Bruno Zabisco and backland who did you steve have subjectively as number four on your page, you have a tie between the Samoans and Pat Patterson.
1: Well, I guess um, I would put ahead of them, even though um, the Samoans definitely look like a great choice, I, I put ahead of both of them uh, would, would be um, uh, Ken Patera. As Ken Patera had a huge series against Backlund in, in 1980. He uh, won the Observer Match of the Year at MSG. And they had some really great matches together and, uh, um, you know, great box office as well. And Patera was just phenomenal that year. He had a a great year. And and I do remember reading uh, that um, he thought that uh, Vince Sr. was going to give him the title when he came back, and that didn't turn out to be. But he ended up getting the IC belt, and he got a great push and great run against Backlund. So, I'm sure he was very pleased, and I think that was the time that he also had the Missouri State title, too. So he was really a major, major player in wrestling in 1980.
0: I had him as my only honorable mention. I had him at number six. Like you said, he had the run with the Intercontinental title. He had that fantastic run against Backland. May 19th, 1980, they had a Texas death match at Madison Square Garden where... I don't think it was really a match of the decade contender. And I did say decade, but it's in the argument for a top 10 spot.
1: Yeah. The, the, Patero was really in his prime there. Uh, you know, in he was such a great performer. I, I actually prefer the, the heavier Patero from the 1977 against Bruno. Uh, he seemed even more like ominous and dangerous yes. uh, here. Here he was more svelte and more, uh, chiseled looking in, in this more, uh, uh aerodynamic, but, uh, he was a, a great challenger against backland.
0: When he was in the middle of this run. And I have said this about a couple of guys. I said it about Valentine too. I'm about to say it about Morocco. I was like, okay, when he comes back here in 1982, he's going to be the next superstar, Billy Graham. He's going to get the title, mm-hmm. even though he had already had a series against, against Bruno in 76, 77, mm-hmm. then against Backland in 78. Now he's had another one against Backland. So that was the mark against him. As far as me thinking he was going to be the next world champion.
1: Yeah, I, I, I definitely would have liked to have seen that though, is he just, he just had all the tools and, uh, you know, even though Billy Graham, uh, in his heyday of 77 was so spectacular, uh, Patera really had it uh, miles uh, on him as far as the wrestling and the the technique. Billy was great with the interviews and, and really a good bumper for a bigger guy. But uh, other than that, his wrestling was very limited.
0: I Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, the superstar, he was what he was. He was not a great in-ring performer, but he was a great professional wrestler. Yes. My number four subjectively was Pedro Morales. He returned... Afterward, I thought was a far too long absence. I've said it before. Pedro was conspicuous with his absence during the superstar Billy Graham reign. I mean, I I have no idea why he was not brought back, but finally he's back. He has the, you know, he's the former WWF champion. He wasn't a guy who was champion for nine days either. He was a real WWF champion. He comes in, he wins the tag titles with Bob Backlund. Obviously they can't keep those titles but he did win the intercontinental championship for Terra, And this was the year that he set himself up as the number two baby face for uh, up until the beginning of 1983. And he was really good in that role. I thought.
1: Oh, no, oh, definitely. Uh, definitely. He wasn't, uh, really uh, at the top of my chart, what we're talking about for the MVP list, but, uh, uh, great to have him back, and I felt the same way you did. I mean, we'd never really seen him since he left in 75 and before you and I became fans, and it was great to have him back. Um, the, the the one I would probably put next on my list would be the Samoans, just because that run they had in 1980 was just a mammoth run, just a, 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 one of the all-time great heel tag teams of the WWF.
0: I, I agree with you. Um, I did not have the Samoans listed, but they were strong tag team champions.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, the the matches weren't really that good, but, I mean, as far as, like, putting over a, a Monster Heel tag team, and, I mean, the WWF had done it before with the Executioners and some other teams, but never to this degree where the team was just so dominant, and, uh, I mean, they got stripped of the tag team titles, and I think they won them again. <laughs> I mean, they were just that dominant, you know? It was amazing.
0: Yeah, I and, like, I agree with you. They were the strongest tag team since the Executioners where they, mm-hmm. they really gave them you know they were more than just eh, another heel tag team like the Yukon Lumberjacks Mm -hmm. all right number five okay you said the Samoans so subjectively and according to your ranking system I had Hulk Hogan as number five and it's a strong number five I think he would have been higher a lot of different years um Hulk Hogan arrived like November 1979 I had never seen him before but you know here's this guy I get all the magazines I've never seen or heard of him and right away, I knew he was going to be a star. He was huge. He was muscular. He was charismatic. He was a heel this entire run. But he, you know, a lot was made in the after magazines about Hogan never getting a title shot at Madison Square Garden against Bob Backlund. Well, he got two at the Philadelphia Spectrum, and they were both really good matches. Have you seen them?
1: I think I may have seen one of them, but he, uh, I, I did see in person a match he had with Andre and Binghamton, the same card we had as a Visco backland match too. really good match. It was the first time I'd ever really seen Andre in a competitive match. I mean, usually the other matches, they just were, were jokes for the most part, but Andre Andre really was tested by Hogan. And I think, uh, you know, Hogan, uh, would, would typically slam Andre or give him the big uh, lariat type move and, very impressive how Hogan was in this in this time frame,
0: and that's that's another reason why I had him listed, you know, above guys like Ken Patera, Tony Atlas. I mean, it was you know such a big year. the Samoans. It was such a big year in the WWF because finally, after four years, we have Hogan in a serious feud, and mm-hmm. not only you know, I mean, I don't Ernie Ladd didn't do anything to Andre in 1976 other than be almost as tall as him, in, in the storyline. Right uh, n- now we've got Andre in the the first angle I've ever seen. You know they they come out and Andre and Hogan get into an argument and they get in the ring and start fighting and Hogan loads up the elbow pad, you know, knocks Andre silly. Andre's a bloody mess. You're like, oh my god, Andre is vulnerable. This That's guy right. did something to Andre the Giant.
1: Yeah, there were there were probably some chinks in Andre's armor. It was it was hard to believe.
0: And you know this Hogan guy he's big and he's young. And even after the feud, you're like, you know, Oh my God, he's going to get nothing but better. And I never pictured him turning into what he turned into, but you knew this guy had a future that maybe even, you know, back then, let me let's be honest. Back then the NWA title was the biggest title in wrestling. And I'm like, this guy might win the NWA title.
1: Yeah. I, I didn't really think of for him, but, uh, but, you know, looking back now and knowing what we do know now, I, I, I'm thinking Vince probably knew um, that, you know, this guy could be a major player for my promotion in the future. You know, I don't know if he knew he was going to be the baby face, but maybe just he had to go to the AWA and get the seasoning and improve himself there before he said, Vince said to himself, this is the guy I have to use to make my big uh, national run with.
0: And, and you know what? I mean, it's a, it's a, we've said it on the show before, it's a popular question. If not Hogan, who? I don't know, but it wouldn't have been anywhere near as big.
1: Yeah, there's there's no there's no easy choice there. And then most of them, when you really kind of dig into the choice, it's not really a good choice at all.
0: No. I mean, you could have Kerry Von Erich, and it would be okay if he keeps his head screwed on straight. Mm-hmm. I've said Hacksaw Jim Duggan. You know, like I said, it might have worked, but it wouldn't have been as big. Butch Reed, same thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a whole bunch of names you could put out there, but uh, Hulk is so far past anybody, it's
0: it's just not even close. All right, 1981. Mm-hmm. Again, on your website, consistently, you have Bob Backlund as the number one guy. Would you have him subjectively as your top guy?
1: Well, let's see here. Um, I'm, actually, I'm actually on the site here, and I'm just going over to 1981, so forgive me. Okay, here I am. Yep. So that was the year of Don Morocco. I think you alluded to earlier. He had made his debut in the fall of 80, or I think it was the fall. And he was just such a a remarkable star, uh, intercontinental champion, and uh, top contender for Backland. He'd be, uh, after Backland, he'd be my number one guy.
0: Okay. I, I actually, now here's the thing. I always like yell in real sports when they just get tired of giving the MVP to the same guy. So, because you know, this, this, the same guy I deserves it every year when that happens, like for example, Charles Barkley got the MVP in the NBA in 92 and 93. And I was like, mm-hmm. okay, so you're just tired of giving it to Michael Jordan. No one <laughs> can tell me Barkley was ever better than Jordan. Okay. Mm-hmm. I have Morocco subjectively as my number one. And I really don't think I am doing that just to be different. Um, I know Bob is obviously he's the champion. He's really important, but he's established as a, as the champion. And now it's like, okay, he's, he's peaked. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Morocco, in my opinion, and I've always said that said this when Morocco beat Pedro Morales for the intercontinental title, I was like, okay, this is now a very important title. Morocco is now a very important wrestler. I believe that Morocco in 81 made the Intercontinental title what it was for the remainder of the decade. Just It was a secondary title, but it was a really important secondary title. And I just thought that, you know, he, he had a great run against Backland. He did our draws, some of which were good. The one I saw, not very good. But to me, it looked like we have the next superstar Billy Graham on our hands. And I know this is about Patera, but when Morocco finished up at the end of 81, I was saying when he comes back, he is going to win the title. Graham had one run against Bruno Sammartino. He won at the second run. Backland has now had the title for three years, actually four at the end of 1981. I, this is it. The time has come when Morocco comes back. He's winning the title.
1: You know, after that great uh, summation you just made, I kind of had a crazy idea go through my head. If Vince had started his national run in 81 rather than 84, if he had owned the company, I know he didn't really own it in 81, uh, Morocco would have been the guy to go with because uh, the way he was in 81 when he came in with the Wizard as as his manager, he was in in much better shape he would become in future years and future uh, versions of Morocco. His wrestling was phenomenal. His movement was phenomenal. His strength moves were phenomenal. I mean, just a huge uh, repertoire of maneuvers. And and his interviews were just completely, uh, unbelievably good. He was great with The Wizard. Uh, He was maybe even better with Albano in 83, but he was heavier then. And his his work was maybe not as good then. But uh, but had he gone national in 81, Vince, uh, Morocco would have been a phenomenal choice, I think.
0: That's an excellent point, and something else I was thinking of too. Like I knew, you know, the WWF obviously they prefer having a babyface champion. uh I didn't even realize to what extent until Sheik had the belt for three or four weeks, and then listened to Hogan, and who would have it until 1988. But I was thinking, you know, but we would have that again. We would have another right around a year run with a heel champion when Backlund was finished, just so the babyfaces could get their day in the sun, so that they you know, the Ivan Putskys and the Tony Atlases of the world could get in the main event.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, uh, from reading Backlund's book, I mean, what you and I didn't understand at the time, I guess, Vince Sr. was just happy as a hug uh, with Backlund as champion. I mean, he was doing, uh, I mean, Backlund and Sr. had a great relationship. I mean, they're almost like father and son, and and Bob didn't rock the boat. I mean, it was business was happy, and there was no complaints, and uh, so there was no real reason to put the belt on anybody else. I mean, from a fan perspective, I think you and I were hoping to see that because we're a little tired of stale Bob Backlund, but yes. I guess senior was so happy that, you know, he didn't have to play head games or, or deal with the massive egos like he did in the past. So uh, he was very happy dealing with Backlund.
0: You know, it's funny. I was talking with Brian last about a year ago, which, you know, he just called for the holidays to say hi. And I, I told him that when, Stick to Wrestling started off like I wanted to be the Bob Backlund of podcasters. I just wanted him. (laughs) I wanted that show to just show up and, you know, with no hassles, it just shows up. And and Brian's like, well, you did that. You know, I don't have to worry about you. So I was very proud of that moment. And I totally get that because you're right. Vince senior had to deal with Bruno and, you know. Bruno was a good guy, but Bruno had his demands. You know, Bruno was getting paid more per show, getting a better percentage than the NWA champion. And Bruno could be a grouch. You know, then superstar Billy Graham comes along and he's unreliable and he liked to argue about angles. He got mad when he he actually had to lose the belt when he was told he was going to lose the belt. And, you know, Backlund brought none of that to the table. He was reliable in every dimension.
1: Yeah, I mean, he he was such a great champion. I mean, uh, I'm sure with the people that reported back to Vince Sr. and told him what Backlund did, I mean, he must have been so uh, elated to hear some of these stories. It's like I remember one night, I think, in Binghamton, uh, there was some technical problem. Maybe the ring truck broke down, and, and the ring didn't get there, but like, Backlund was there in his three-piece suit, and he was shaking hands with everybody and going around the whole arena, and, and there was everybody was happy as a clam. I mean, here's the world champ. Uh, shaking hands with every uh, mom and dad and kid and and uh, and that was the kind of champion he was so there was no reason to, to to trade off to another person because he was fantastic
0: yeah and they were they were still drawing even though bob was feeling stale to me he was still drawing so there's there's nothing to complain about right absolutely now, you had on your system you had backlund number 1 you had morocco number 3 and you had the tag team of tony Gurria and rick martel as number 2 Now, obviously, I'm thinking that's a numbers thing, and you wouldn't have put them there subjectively.
1: You're absolutely right. That was just because they apparently had, uh, I mean, looking at the numbers, they apparently did uh, a ton of house shows, maybe more than any other tag team, uh, except for maybe the Valiants or the Samoans. uh, But they had done a huge amount of house shows and were really over. Um, So Morocco and Backel would be my top two. And then as far as the number three, I probably would go with Killer Khan, only because, uh, uh, like you t- talked about Hogan bringing out the best and Andre, uh, Killer Khan, that feud that they had, uh, again, it was another feud that really gave Andre something to chew on, and, and they had those stretcher matches, which were really phenomenal. And and even, uh, even the Observer fans, who were a little, a little prickly at times, as far as WWF goes, they voted that feud, uh, the top feud of the year of, of 81, so that was very impressive.
0: Yeah, I actually had Killer Khan. I have him listed. Now, I don't have honorable mention listed for every year, Mm -hmm. but sometimes you have five spots and you have six guys who you feel like absolutely need to be in there, Mm -hmm. but you just can't do it. And I had Killer Khan in that spot for the exact reasons that you had stated. Like, you know, finally, they have figured out that instead of having Andre just be there like they did 77, 78, and 79, they're actually giving him programs now, and his his program with Killer Khan, which ended in the infamous Mongolian stretcher matches. <laughs> it was a really good feud.
1: It, it was. I remember. I remember watching some of the matches. I think they had some of those matches from Landover, Maryland, on USA Network, and uh, I almost pitied uh, Killer Khan. I mean, he would, you know, Andre would do everything to him under the sun. He would sit on him. He would splash him and like sit on his head. He would do everything and. They put Killer Khan on the stretcher. He'd be almost all the way to the back and then almost off the stretcher and come back and, you know, give Andre a little bit more for his money. But, um, you know, in the long run, Andre won all those matches. But uh, you had to be impressed with Killer Khan. And uh, it's almost surprising that when he did finally come back in 87 against Hogan, it was a very short run. And uh, he just was a very quick fodder for Hogan in 87.
0: You know, in some of those matches, I saw a in Killer Con match in, at the Boston Garden, that was really good. It was, mm-hmm. I mean, not just good for a Hogan match; it was a good match. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Killer Con, couple of things. I want. I have. a I have a Killer Con story, but I have to agree with you. Like, it was like Killer Con. You know, he got it. it, it you know, this is Andre the Giant. Wor- you're working with, and here's your role. And it's like he embraced it. He just let Andre beat the crap out of him. And Killer Con is a big guy, not. He's not just a big guy that you'd see walking down the street. He was a big guy for a pro wrestler, and he was happy to do it.
1: Yeah, yeah, he just uh, he was just had such a large body and a large frame, and uh, he was very believable against Andre. Uh, I mean, you you felt that he uh, was just very uh, uh, had the stamina and the strength that he could you know kind of
0: keep up with Andre. All right, here's my Killer Con story. And there's profanity in it, so just get ready. Um, All right. <laughs> I am at the Elm Street, the Chestnut Street Gym in in Nashua. This is November 1981, either either late October or November. And it's, it's Sunday night, and there's wrestling. And the main event is Tony Atlas against Killer Con. Okay. And Killer Con, they do the finish where Killer Con just gives up and goes back to the dressing room, right? Right. And Killer Khan stops for a minute and starts walking back to the ring. And then he just says, no. And he's going back to the dressing room. And I hear this guy yell, hey, Khan, get back in there. And Khan <laughs> looks at him and he goes, fuck you. You get back in there. And he leaves. <laughs> and this is Killer Khan, who, like, doesn't speak English. Right. Who does gibberish interviews. So, obviously, Killer Khan was having a little bit of fun in Nashville that night. And that was just unforgettable.
1: Maybe, uh, maybe he just... Decided to put some American words together and just kind of lucked out. Who
0: knows? (laughs) I I think he knew some English. I think he, he knew enough to get by that sort of thing. Okay. All right. I had, and this may be a bit of a surprise. Number three, the tag team of Mr. Fuji and Mr. Saito. And that is not a reflection on the singles part of the, the WWF being weak or anything like that. Fuji and Saito were like the greatest tag team of all time in WWF terms. Like, they got so much heat. It was incredible. Yeah, they, they did. And,
1: and the thing about, about Saito that impressed me so much was just he, he was such a great wrestler. I mean, uh, I remember they had, uh, I think, a scientific match with him against Backlund where they just stuck to wrestling holds. There was no brawling or
0: anything. And he, he was just phenomenal. He really was. He was as big as a tank too. I mean, you know, to me, they they came in with Albano. Albano started dressing like (laughs) I think the no way he did start dressing like a moon dog, but yeah, those outfits he had uh, mixing in with Fuji and Saito were mind blowing.
1: Lou Albano was turning Japanese. He really was.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, Fuji and Saito, I saw them almost start a riot literally a riot at the Boston Garden in 1982 really? mm-hmm. and it was 80 was it 82 or 83 it was late 82 i went to a match uh, a wwf show uh, at the wallace arena in fitchburg mass and before the match even started some idiot had a knife and was going after mr F- mr fuji like this was pre <laughs> predetermined it. okay i'm coming to the arena. i'm gonna get mr fuji
1: oh my goodness
0: that's that pretty crazy all of a sudden like every cop in that building was all over this guy Thank and goodness. i don't know what happened afterwards but it was like you know wow mm. so who did you have as number three um subjectively well, well, i know you had morocco on the list
1: okay I know I have Slaughter very high, and and he was he was uh, since including his matches with Patterson, including the, the boot camp match, uh, the matches against Backlund. Of course, he was another heavy challenger against Backlund. Um, so yeah, Sergeant Slaughter was definitely in, in his prime at this point.
0: Yeah, I had Sergeant Slaughter number four for the mm-hmm. exact reasons you mentioned. I mean, not only you know it hurt Slaughter a little bit that he showed up. Uh, August 1980. So that takes a little bit away from him. You know, we're, we're strictly dealing with what he did in 1981, mm-hmm. but at the same time, you know, he was still having matches against Bob Backlund in Philadelphia, in Boston. You know, those are not small markets. And then of course, the giant feud with Pat Patterson that we talked about a, a couple of weeks ago.
1: Yeah, that, that was, that was a very, very good feud. And, uh, and, you know, as you mentioned, it definitely a highlight of uh, both of their careers, really.
0: All right. So who would you have for number five subjectively? Sergeant Slaughter, you had according to your point system?
1: I'd say um uh, I'd say at this point, um, uh, much like your listing of Fuji and Saito, I would I would list Gri and Martel. Uh, from a fan favorite perspective, I think uh they were uh kind of like a WWF version of uh the Rock and Roll Express. They and were the, they were kind of a young uh, team that the girls could kind of like, and, uh, and the young kids could kind of root behind, and, and they, were, they were very effective for what they did.
0: Here's what I heard a long time ago from someone who was with the WWF, okay? Gurria and Martel win the titles from the Samoans, and like every other babyface tag team, they hold them for five or six months, and they lost the titles to the Moondogs. I was told the original plan was for Martel and Gurria both to you know leave the area. And the decision was made. They're like, hey, these guys are so over as a tag team. Let's put the belts on them again in like six months. And they did it.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I, I've never heard that. But that that makes sense because they were very, very popular. And and I think uh, another show I mentioned to you that there was some talk of uh, a Tony Atlas S.D. Jones team, which would have been effective. But um, these guys, you know, why, why, uh, why? Well, why fix what's not broken? Yeah, you know, why not go with Martel and Korea longer because the fans really enjoyed it.
0: Yeah, my my understanding is that they did change plans. Although this is a, a bad thing that WWF did. The tag team scene was so was already so ridiculously predictable. Okay, and the Moon Dogs are still the tag team champions, right? Mm-hmm. Well, Albano brings in another tag team, Mister Fuji and Mister Saito. So you don't even have time to say, okay, well, who will? martel and guria eventually lose the champions to. they're already here (laughs)
1: yeah they 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 were a bit predictable in that regard you're absolutely correct
0: i mean even even a junior high kid I, i picked up their uh their algorithm or whatever you want to call it moving on to 1982 which i thought was a really fun year in the wwf they brought in a lot of new blood uh, Steve. On your obviously, you have Bob Backlund. Uh, numbers is number one, but who's number two? Who's number one in your subjective opinion?
1: Um, it's got to be Snuka. I'm, I'm. In retrospect, I'm not a big Snooker guy. Mainly because of you know what happened with him and how his run in the WW, WWF kind of came to an end. Yeah, with his girlfriend and the drug problems and this and that. Yeah. Uh, but, but in this era here where he's still like a newcomer, um, he, he was huge in 82. I know you said it in some of the, your previous shows, just um, he was um, kind of like when they talked about The Undertaker. He was the phenom at the time. He was the uh, like, this is a guy we've never seen before. And this this, you know, jump off the top rope and his his maneuvers, his agility. Nobody had ever seen anything like that before. So he would he would be my uh, uh, MVP uh, after Backlund.
0: Now that's funny because I actually have Snuka number two behind Bob Backlund because I thought Backlund had such a strong year against such a strong array of challengers. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's very close, and I I was going back and forth on this, but I had Backlund just because it was probably it was my favorite year of him being champion because they had. They had so many different challengers. They had Adonis. They had Jesse Ventura, Bob Orton Jr. They had Jimmy Snuka, uh, Ray Stevens, uh, Big John Studd, and whoever else I'm forgetting. The return was, you know, of superstar
1: Billy Graham. Superstar attacked.
0: Billy Graham. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was such a, a great time, and and you know there were so many guys coming in that were fresh and new. And Backlund really had some great matches with Adrian Adonis. Uh, some of which are available out there from like Landover from Madison square garden. He, he had a really good match against Backlund at, at Boston garden. So it, it, to me, it was just a really good year for Bob Backlund.
1: Oh, no, I, I agree. I agree with that. Um, I, I mentioned in some of my notes that, um, he actually went outside the WWF for some unique matches. Uh, get this wrestled Billy Robinson in Montreal. he wrestled Jimmy Garvin in Miami. And he had the uh, very famous world title match against Ric Flair, a title versus title in Atlanta, Georgia.
0: Yeah, and you know that that match in Atlanta. I mean, now I was getting WTBS at the time, and it just felt like a dream match. You had Ric Flair, who was brand spanking new as as champion, been that champion for like eight months. You've got Backlund, the seasoned veteran champion. It, It seemed like a really a dream match coming in. Unfortunately, I've I've heard more than once it was not very good. You know, uh, what
1: really surprised me from Backlund's book was where he mentioned that Backlund himself was very suspicious about what might happen that night. He thought that there may be some uh, double cross or some way that he might lose the title. And knowing what we know about Backlund is kind of a, you know not only a co- collegiate amateur uh, phenom for what he is, and knowing that Flair really wasn't at his level, it's kind of surprising to think that Backlund was that, you know, worried about Flair.
0: Well, I mean, all I mean, if the referee's in on it, it's easy to do. I mean, instead of Backlund, you know, kicking out at two, it only takes that one extra shift in weight to make and and cooperation with the referee to make that a three count.
1: Yeah, I just thought. So, Interesting, though, that, that, that he really was, that, you know, that, that because, again, that was a part, that was an era where the promotions
0: were really pretty much, you know, cooperating and, you know, working together. and. Yeah, I read Backlund's book two years ago, and I remember him talking about that, that, you know, he was not doing any two counts. But I just don't understand why he felt like that was the night and this was the opponent that this was going to happen. Yeah, yeah, I I, I
1: and I know he has some other you know, championship matches with Bockwinkel and with um, Harley Race, but I know he had a long relationship with Harley Race going back to his younger years in wrestling, so he wasn't worried about a double cross there, but apparently with Flair he was.
0: I mean, maybe, you know what, as I'm sitting here talking about it, I'm thinking maybe it had to do with the fact that the match got so much hype on a national cable channel. That could be it, yeah. Uh, maybe, I don't know, but... <laughs> don't worry, the Harley Race vs. Bob Backlund Madison Square Garden match wasn't any good either, okay? <laughs> you know, and I wanted to say this too, while, while we are talking about Snuka, if there was ever a year where a manager could have won the MVP, 1982 and Captain Lou Albano. Yeah. I mean, you know, just because of the Snuka thing.
1: Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, people just don't give Captain Lou enough credit for what he was able to do. Because, because, like, for instance, going back to 77, he had a match with Arnold Scolin, and Arnold Scullin, you know, beat him up at MSG and left him bloody. And, and Patterson did the same, and, and other people did it to him. And I know Bruno beat him in a cage match in Boston. But um, people never tired of seeing Lou Albano get his come-ups. And he had that match, uh, another one, at the Garden against Snooker that people just pop for. They just love seeing him get beat up.
0: I mean, I spent years, he's, he's in the observer hall of fame. Now, I don't know if he would have cared, but I, I wish he had gotten in before he died. And I spent years pounding on the table saying this guy absolutely is a hall of famer. Not, you know, not just a, a fringe. Well, he's better than this guy. And he's better than that guy. Like he's better than guys who are in the middle of the hall of fame. Oh oh yeah. I I mean,
1: I I know this is going to not fly well with some people, but, uh, and I, I love Bobby Heenan. I think Bobby Heenan is one of the, if not the greatest of all time. I, I would put uh, Albano's best work up against Heenan, and, and I wouldn't uh, be afraid to say that I think Captain Lew at his very best was even better than Bobby Heenan at his very best, and I know that's hard to believe, but uh, I do believe that.
0: You know what? One, And I, I don't disagree. The one thing, like, uh, there's a lot of... 70s and 80s Lou Albano out there and the guy is absolutely hilarious he's perfect he's funny but at the same time I mean he is such a a sleaze bag that you, you wanted to hate the guy like Albano was the one heel or one of the very few heels that I disliked which means that he was doing his job a lot better than a guy like Valentine or Ken Patera
1: oh yeah and and when when the time came as it usually does in wrestling when for whatever reason, they have to turn a long-time heel into a good guy. When they did it with Captain Lou in the end of, I think it was the end of 84, right before WrestleMania won, uh, it worked very effectively. And there was a brief, brief period there, maybe like one week. Uh, it's, you thought that maybe uh, Piper versus Albano was going to be a thing because it, there was so much heat between the two of them as far as their personas but yeah, and I know all the 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 caveats or all the negatives of Captain Lou as far as the stuff that went out on later on, the you know, all the all the cheesy appearances on the shows and things, but he was so great in his prime, I mean, he really was.
0: He he really was, and I mean two quick things. Number one, we are recording this on Sunday, December twenty-seventh, twenty twenty, and it was thirty-six years ago today that Roddy Piper smashed that uh, award trophy thing (laughs) over Albano's head at Madison Square Garden cementing his turn but I'll never forget watching primetime wrestling was it Uh, TNT was on in 1984 and Albano reading a Christmas poem to two kids and then the two kids turn around face the camera and they've got like fake Lou Albano beards (laughs) and I was just like no they they can't be turning. No, I will never forget that moment in my life. I was just like never even conceived of the possibility of Lou Albano being a good guy. And then they dropped that hint and I saw it. And I was like, no way. I was just taken aback like no other time as a wrestling fan.
1: Well, there was a brief period from from the time you're describing uh, into like when they did the first Saturday Nightmare event uh Albana was really a key part of the show. I mean he him and um Hogan and Hillbilly Jim wrestled Bobby the Brain and Stud and Bundy and MSG and and he was a big part of, of uh you know the rock and wrestling cartoon on Saturday mornings and and uh really up until the time that uh, he went to do that wise guy movie he was you know a big part of WWF. But you know, it, as Vince went national it was only a matter of time before the old guard the Brunos, the Captain Lou's, the Freddie Blassies, they all had to kind of go uh, go behind the scenes and go away. And it's sad, but it's true. Uh, but that's just the way—that's the way it goes.
0: Now, yeah, t- Father Time is, is undefeated, obviously. And I, I will say this: I mean, the Albano, like Steve, you're right. He was a big part of the WWF in '85 and '86 until he he retired summer of '86. This is where I can see someone saying. Yeah, he was a big part of it, but it sucked. Like, that, that <laughs> tag team with uh, him and Hillbilly Jim, Andre Hillbilly Jim, and Captain Lou Albano uh, right. against, I think it was Big John Studd, Bobby Heenan, someone else, Bundy. Bundy, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see someone saying, oh, yeah, that sucks. <laughs> oh, yeah,
1: yeah. He was just, he was just kind of, uh, it was almost like a retirement tour, I felt, for him, but... Uh... But, but yeah, they, they, uh, and even some of the stuff on the national scene, he he was really phenomenally good.
0: Yeah, he, he really was. From 86 until the, the moment they turned him heel, he was nonstop entertainment. <laughs> who did you have for number three MVP in 1982? Let me see. Back to the website. You had Jimmy Snook at number three. I know subjectively you have him a little bit higher. So who would be your subjective number three?
1: Hmm. I think it would probably be uh, Pedro Morales, just because he was probably the top guy. And you mentioned this earlier, just uh, really cemented his place as the number two uh, a fan favorite or good guy, uh, uh, headlined a ton of house shows that year, uh, had a huge uh, amount of uh, main events of house shows. Uh, I would put him in that position.
0: I had Pedro Morales as a strong number three. There's a big gap between number three and number four here. I mean, the guy, you know, it, it was his second go-round as Intercontinental Champion, but he never felt stale. At the time, I was not a fan of Pedro Morales, but he was what he was. He was a, a rock as the Intercontinental Champion. He, you always had that second strong match on the show in Madison Square Garden, Pittsburgh, Baltimore, wherever you wanted to go.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, I, I felt the same way you did about him. I, I think he was just uh, kind of wearing on his welcome and, and he was starting to show his age a bit, but uh, he was, he was, you know, just a solid guy who really, um, you know, was, was so well established. It was hard to really get rid of him. I mean, he was very successful at what he did.
0: Yeah. And, and you know, I said he didn't feel stale. I would say the beginning and middle of 82 he did not feel stale towards the end of 82. It was like, mm-hmm. all right, it's time for something else. <laughs> right. and, and perfect timing. That's when Morocco beat Morales like January. Was it January or February of 83? It doesn't matter. And then Pedro kind of went away until he came back as sort of a, a protected legend in, in 85. Right. All right. So number four, you had the tag team of Mr. Fuji and Mr. Saito based on points. Uh, subjectively, would you have the number four?
1: I think I would, because they were, uh, that. as far as tag teams that year, they were really the uh, the, the gold standard, I would say.
0: No, I agree. Um, I mean, they had that interesting feud. It was interesting when it first started against the Strongbows, and I thought they kind of, I've said this before, they stretched that feud out way too long. By the time the Strongbows got the Got the titles; they were already stale. We didn't want to see them anymore.
1: Yeah, I think um, you know Strongbow had been so incredibly popular, and I know he was your, I think your initial favorite. The he was. We yeah. wouldn't be
0: here right now if it wasn't for Chief <laughs> Strongbow. I'm totally <laughs> serious.
1: No, I, I I agree with you. He was one of my favorites too. And uh, but 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 by the time he came back in '82, I think just he just seemed older and heavier, and and this guy. This guy, this Frankie Hill that was his partner is Jules Strongbow. He didn't have any of the charisma or enthusiasm that uh, Billy Whitewolf had back in the 70s. And he just it just seemed like they're going through the motions to me.
0: I agree. I mean, we, we were initially very happy to see Chief J. Strongbow back. And, you know, he has been gone for three years. And then that blind spot slowly started to fade away like this is an out of shape old man on my television. <laughs> I mean, I recently saw a match of his in 84, and, I mean, it was like the age machine was on overdrive for him. He he looked so, I don't like to use the word, pathetic, and I know it was the very end of his career, and he was doing jobs putting guys over, but right. it was a sad sight. Yeah, I, I
1: did see a match, maybe this is the one you saw, him against Orndorff at MSG, and he actually took a huge bump uh, into the corner and went over the top, but, but it just... I mean, where that move had been really cool against Waldo Von Erich, seeing him do it and flailing about on the floor in MSG, it just seemed kind of sad and pathetic by this point.
0: Yeah, I, I saw a match where was against uh, Dr. D. David Schultz, and, and Strongbow was trying, but there was just no saving the guy. At the end of 83, Iron Sheik came back, and his first match in Boston, if I recall correctly, was against Strongbow. And they did the thing where, you know, Strombo just taking off his headdress and getting ready and Sheik sneak attacked him and pinned him in 30 seconds. And we're all looking at each other like that's all Strombo can do right now, or that's all he can do now. It's time for him to retire. And maybe six, seven months later, he did retire.
1: You, you know, it's funny when you look back, I think, uh, if I'm re- remembering this correctly, I think, uh, when Koloff beat Bruno, I think, uh, one of Kolov's few defenses was against Strongbow. And I think when Iron Sheik beat back one of his few defenses was against Strongbow. It's just kind of funny how that worked out.
0: Yeah. No, it, it, he definitely had a match somewhere against Strongbow. I mean, he had a match against Tito Santana, too. But you're right. I mean, it's an interesting irony. Mm-hmm. My number four, and it, it's, it's so close. I'm not saying anything bad about these guys. You, there's just not that much difference between adonis ventura orton ventura had the the big feud not only did he have his matches with bob Backlund, but he had the big feud with tony atlas so he's the one that gets honorable mention at number six but number four for me was an exciting newcomer to the world wrestling federation on the babyface side who looked like he was going to do big things here and that's rocky johnson And I know Rocky, you know, now I look and I'm like, okay, Rocky's way past prime. He, you know, he'd been wrestling in Portland before that, but I knew, I just saw him as a big star. I knew who he was through the magazine. He was at one point a serious contender for the NWA title. And I was just really excited to see him arrive in the WWF. And let's be honest, we needed a black wrestler in the WWF. And we finally got a black superstar.
1: Yeah, I, I liked Rocky Johnson. He he really had a fire and intensity that was uh, really refreshing to see, and uh, you know had a really nice repertoire with the drop kicks, and you know he was a very professional guy. had a great look, and uh, obviously the Rock has got some of the same uh, attributes. Otherwise, he wouldn't be the Rock. But yeah, he he was very very good, and uh, and he would be um, you know very good in '83 against Morocco there too. Yeah.
0: I mean, he, that's right. He had the big feud against Morocco, and we you know we've talked about this before. Rocky Johnson had the bad luck having a feud with Morocco right before Snooker feuded with Morocco, and then mm-hmm. the next year Johnson was feuding with Roddy Piper right before Jimmy Snooker was feuding with Piper. Basically, he got the forgettable feuds. Yeah, yeah, and it, it was just like you say, bad luck because. Uh,
1: he ends up teaming with Atlas. They get the world championships. And then because uh, Atlas was a little lackadaisical and his uh, ability to show up at arenas, uh, they <laughs> soon lost their ability to have the titles. So that was very unfortunate.
0: Yeah, it r- really was unfortunate because before that, Tony Atlas, I mean, I-, I keep saying this, he was a guy that I could see them putting the NWA title on. And it was like after that tag team title run, like Atlas just fell off a cliff and, and now I know why he fell off a cliff. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, think, um, and I know Piper mentioned this in his book, which was a really disappointing book, by the way, uh, that book was the, awful. It really was. But, but, but I guess there was that time I think it was like first uh, big meeting they had with the national run they were going to do. And it was Vince and Jim Barnett. And I think Vince's father was there and all, all, like, all these stars that they, you know, uh, poached from these other promotions. and, Tony Atlas said something really dumb. And I think from that point forward, it was like he was just like considered uh, not worth salvaging, I guess.
0: I have not read Piper's book in like 15 years, but I remember him writing about this meeting and me being like, "Okay, this is completely fictitious. Nothing like this ever (laughs) happened. Maybe Atlas said whatever he said, but there was no meeting where Roddy Piper and like, 40 wrestlers sitting around and you know vince mcmahon's giving a speech and and the wrestlers are dissing him or whatever that never happened that's, that's <laughs> i just remember reading that i'm like okay this I'm um, maybe someone who doesn't know better might believe it and roddy's was kind of i loved roddy piper don't get me wrong but roddy lived in his own world and <laughs> you know what can i say that was i, I was just reading that story and shaking my head uh, I thought I thought my neck was going to break Who, <laughs> number 5 in 1982 you had Ivan Putski by the numbers actually by a pretty big margin over number 6 Greg Valentine would you subjectively put Ivan Putski at number 5
1: well knowing what i know now and i i will uh, play a little favoritism here for change i probably would would slide Adrian Adonis into that fifth spot just because uh he was always somebody I was really impressed with and and uh he had a, you know obviously a terrible body for wrestling, but uh what an incredible wrestler he was nonetheless he had great ability and uh you know made the most of what he had and and what happened to him, you know hitting the moose or whatever and what happened to him was so tragic and yeah. uh, and i, I that, that if i if I could put a list of like my top five or top ten regrets of wrestling not seeing him be able to have a strong comeback in 88 or 89 would definitely be on that list.
0: And for what I have heard, I, I heard this in 88 before he died that he was, you know, he was losing weight and he had a, a deal. Once he lost enough weight, he was going to JCP with the black jacket gimmick. So this yeah, that wasn't some, great. Yeah. yeah. This isn't some crazy story I heard. Like after he died, I heard it before he died on July 4th, 1988. And that's the thing. This is so hard. Like I saw a great Adonis matches. I saw a great Bob Orton Jr. match. I mean, superstar Billy Graham coming back, that was a big deal. Ultimately, I gave the spot to, and he just beat out Jesse the Body Ventura. I went with Blackjack Mulligan. Really? Yeah, because again, finally, we have Andre against an opponent who is credible, who might be able to beat Andre the Giant, just because he's so big, and I saw Mulligan as a big star. Like, if you ask me tomorrow, it might be someone else. I mean, I saw Mulligan have a really bad match against Bob Backlund in Boston. Uh, So, but like I said, you know, he had the run against Backlund, and he finally gave Andre his first credible opponent since 1980. You know, his his third one since 1976. I I would say uh, Blackjack Mulligan
1: would have to be taken out of the discussion based on on the perm alone. He's out. (laughs)
0: He's out. (laughs) Not just the perm. The fact that he had it dyed red. (laughs) I must have had a bad TV. I didn't know about that part. (laughs) I don't know. Oh, Mulligan, you know you had to be a tough guy in real life to run around with hair like that. (laughs) All right. We're going to wrap up with 1983. Now, 1983 WWF, I liked it. But it felt like a movie that I was watching for the second or third time. I mean, a lot of guys came back who had just been there very recently. Morocco had just left, yet he was already back. Slaughter, same thing. The Samoans, a little further back, but still, you know, Stud was still hanging around. All Big John Stud was still hanging around all year. Oh, George Steele, I'm not forgetting him. I mean, it was, this was his third running against Bob Backlund. Like I said, I liked it, but it was different than 1982. It's like, okay, these are the the same old guys, no new guys like Adonis, Ventura, Orton, et cetera.
1: Mm -hmm. Right.
0: All right. So you're number one using the numbers. I'm trying. They're not in order. So I'm looking for them. Please bear with me. There there it is. Bob Backlund, number one. And for number one, I actually hedged superfly Jimmy Snuka because he just electrified the territory. Backlund may have had the belt, but Steve, my opinion is that Jimmy Snooker was the number one babyface. I can't, I can't argue
1: with you on that. I mean, uh, it, it's been said a million times, but here's a million to one. I, you know, Backlund went to the the singlet, the crew cut. Uh, he was just not um, enhancing his appeal. He was doing the opposite of that, and yeah. people and people were tired. I mean, it just, I mean. You know, I think I think uh, I wasn't around to see Bruno's first long run as champion. But, you know, for whatever reason, uh, people st- were still very excited to see Bruno as a young champion with Backlund. Maybe because of the, the times are changing. Maybe because the Federation itself was changing. Vince was the owner now.
0: It was it was time that times had changed. It really did change. So, yeah, I I think the business was changing. I mean, I've said this before. It was no longer, you know, 1978 when Bob Backlund or Jack Brooko, whatever, they were, you know, sounding like Tom Seaver or whoever on on TV. Now you've got guys like Hulk Hogan, Dusty Rhodes, Mr. Wrestling 2, Hacksaw Jim Duggan. They're all kick ass baby faces. And the business is moving one way and Backlund was moving the exact opposite direction. And towards the end, it kind of got ugly.
1: I was really surprised the other day. I, I saw—I uh, don't know how or, or how I saw this—but somebody had a 1983 WWF merchandise catalog, and they had pictures of Bob Backlund wearing a Bob Backlund shirt and Rocky Johnson with the same. And and I, I'm surprised they ever really marketed Backlund in that way. I did—I didn't even know that ever happened. I just assumed that the WWF marketing. Uh, with foam fingers and all that started in 84 with Nookka and Hogan. And, but apparently they marketed back on stuff. I never knew.
0: No, I, this is the first I've heard about that either. Although I do remember going to the Boston garden in 1983 mm-hmm. and they, they were selling merchandise. They were selling like black and white eight by tens. And I, that's all I can remember them. selling. So obviously magazines and programs, but right. you know, they, they seem to get into the merchandising business kind of late.
1: Well, you know, uh, I think that's that's where Vince really took the business out of the dark ages, because uh, I, I mean, I can remember my very first show I ever attended was, you know, summer of 77. And they had the, the program like a Norman Keitzer program, and they had a, a whole table full of black and white eight by 10 glossies. They had one that was super big of Andre that you could get that was, like, the size of three 8x10 glossies. That's uh, but But, but uh, yeah, when Vince came in in 80, 84, I remember going to a show. I think it was, like, Hogan against one of the Samoans was the top match. And they had uh, Hogan foam fingers and Snuka foam fingers. And and I don't think they had replica belts then, but, I mean, he, he took his... You know, um, skills that he did from rock concert promoting and, and the hockey games and all this stuff. And he started to market wrestling and it was long overdue.
0: I agree with you 100%. So let me see. You had Bob Backland number one according to the numbers. Uh, did you say you would have Snuka number one subjectively or are you sticking, sticking with Backlund? I, I, um, I probably
1: would go with, with Snuka number one and, and Morocco and Backland could be. You know, flip a coin for number two because they were so close to each other.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm all right. So number two, you have. Let me see. You have Backlund. Number two, I also have Bob Backlund. You know, at, at the end of the day, it was close between him and Morocco, who's my number three. But Backlund, at, at the end of the day, he was the world's champion, and he was having big time defenses against. You know, like I said, guys like Morocco Slaughter, eventually Mass Superstar, eventually Iron Sheik.
1: Yeah, oh yeah. And um and I I would put um you know, right after those three, I would put Rocky Johnson because he was a major uh, factor in nineteen eighty three as well.
0: You had now you had Rocky Johnson at number four. At number four, and this could change again depending on what day it was. I had Big John Studd uh because he was having matches against Backlund. You know, he had his MSG match against Backlund the very end of of, I think it was the very end of 1982. Now I'm thinking about it, it might've been the beginning of 1983, but he was going around against Backland, you know, the beginning of 1983, everywhere else. And then he had that major series with Andre the Giant in cage matches. Oh my God. And we've talked about this on the show before. The cage match was always better in your imagination than it was in <laughs> real life. But, you know, Andre against this, you know, this other giant in a cage, I found it to be intriguing. I I saw a cage match with them from Landover maybe a year ago. It wasn't even that bad. Right. I I always thought John Studd
1: was a very credible wrestler. I know uh, the Observer crowd wasn't into him, but uh, he was always credible to me. Just seemed serious and, you know, a huge individual. And he never did anything cartoony or fake. So he he always seemed like uh, somebody to to be taken seriously.
0: I mean, even before I got the Observer, before I got knew what work rate was, I knew Stud was not was a poor worker. Okay, mm-hmm. I mean he was George Steele level poor, poor worker. Mm-hmm. But the game I always played, me and my friends always played it was okay. We turn off our brains when, whenever we can, and we pretend this stuff is real, and that's how we get the maximum enjoyment out of it. So that's why pre-Observer, I liked Stud enough because I took him seriously. I
1: did too. I really did.
0: All right, number five, you have the Samoans. Um, subjectively, would you still have them at number five?
1: Probably not. I probably would go with Slaughter uh, instead. He was uh, a, a major factor that year, and in, in in what we know, he was a big factor in the NWA too in the Carolinas. So he had a real phenomenal year in two major promotions.
0: I agree with that. I I just can't. I, and I have Slaughter once again listed as number six. I've got six guys that you know all I feel all need to be mentioned. And there's only five spots. The the negative against Slaughter was that he had run against Bob Backlund and then kind of nothing else. But I do remember at the end of 1983 they started dropping little hints that this guy might be turning babyface, and which he did obviously very beginning of '84.
1: Yeah, that that was a very exciting time in wrestling uh, when everything really you know kicked into the national expansion and uh, you know the whole uh, slaughter against Sheik thing and then that really uh, it caught me by surprise and it was a, turned into be a very interesting feud.
0: Yeah, it was a huge feud. I mean, Slaughter was such a big deal in '84 that when uh, when All Star Wrestling was being introduced, he was the guy they were introducing. Like they had him reciting the uh oh god why can't uh, the pledge of allegiance thing. right <laughs> at the beginning you know, of every show so he was getting a huge push but yeah i do remember at the you know we were talking about this <laughs> we went to montreal right before or uh, for new years so we're it's like december 30th or something like that we're in the car talking about how we think slaughter's turning baby face
1: yeah it was it was it was really well done it was uh you know, similar to the Bruno Zabisco thing, it was just laid out in a, in a unique way. The way they kind of bumped into each other in the in the entrance way of going to the ring and back, and uh, yeah, it really really seemed genuine and unique.
0: Yeah, and it, it totally worked. And I mean, I really think that Sheik winning the WWF title almost on you know the greatest fluke of all time. Okay, we signed Hulk Hogan. Who's Backlund wrestling at the Madison Square Garden next? Well, he's getting the belt. And then that huge feud with with Sergeant Slaughter, he had quite a run. I mean, it's interesting that Sheik wins the WWF title at the very end of 1983. But, well, you've got him at number 10. I didn't even consider him because, you know, he was the champion for one week of the year.
1: Right, right. It, it, and also, it's interesting to think, too, that the, the death of Ernie Roth near the end of the year, I think it was maybe October or so, uh, that played a small role too in the whole slaughter thing. I think the fans in Allentown, or, or uh, where they did the tapings, I think they they actually uh, showed some sympathy to slaughter, thinking that you know he lost his mentor, the great grand wizard, and uh, I think fans really bought into that.
0: I I do agree with you, and as a matter of fact, I I have always wondered how they would have handled slaughter and the wizard had wizard not passed away. Let's say if he had another year left in him. My guess is that they would have just, you know, quietly separated the two and then started yeah. the angle and and just have Grand Wizard never mention it. That's my guess. Yeah,
1: yeah. They may have moved him behind the scenes or who knows. Maybe he would have become uh the host of Primetime. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, what they would have done with the wizard.
0: Yeah, or you know, they they could have made Wizard part of turn as far as, you know, he turns on Slaughter or Maybe it was time for the Grand Wizard to be a babyface manager of Sergeant Slaughter and have, I can't, I can't see him being in, No, well, maybe, see him involved in an angle where he's attacked and brutalized by the Iron Sheik. That would have gotten major sympathy heat. Yeah, it would have. It would have been very interesting. The thing is, would you have broken him in half in real life? <laughs> <laughs> he seemed rather frail.
1: Very fragile, yes.
0: Steve, it has been a fun and interesting conversation. Thank you for being so generous with your time. You were an outstanding guest.
1: Well, thank you, John. It was great being back after a lengthy absence. and It is great to always to talk WWF nostalgia with you.
0: Oh, And we will do it again uh, in the near future, hopefully. Hopefully. All right. Well, I want to thank Brian Lass for having me on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. I want to thank our producer, Lightning Lou Kippelman, for all the great work he does. I want to wish everyone again a very happy 2021, and please listen again next week. We will be back. This has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Be safe out there. This concludes our podcast day.